Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope that everybody had a great uh, holiday weekend and are now back in battery, as the saying goes. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A look at markets as everyone gets back to work from summer vacations. The United States Navy announces the three competitors for its flagship FAXX program to develop a new stealthy combat aircraft uh, for use aboard its aircraft carriers. The Pentagon is increasingly buying from allies to replenish its depleted weapon stocks, as well as furnish the needs of its allies and partners, whether Ukraine, Taiwan, or anybody else. This as Kiev makes battlefield gains and Lockheed Martin opens an F-16 training facility in Romania and counterfeit parts for CFM engines are found. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory uh, Consultancy uh, in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, uh, hope you had a little bit of a break uh, and an extra day off. And thanks very much for joining us today. Great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be a holiday without it. Yeah, the day off was much appreciated. Thanks, Fargo. Yes, indeed. Uh, Ron, why don't you uh, start us off uh, as you always do, uh, right? I mean, it's more sort of the story isn't, I guess, the economic news this last, uh, right last week, because a lot of people are off. Folks will be kind of coming back more after summer vacation, the traditional end of uh, uh, the summer holidays. Sort of talk to us about the week uh, behind us, but also what the expectations are of how uh, the markets are going to do when people get back to work. Yeah, I think if, if you just you look at the past week, um, you know, markets were, S&P was up 2.5%. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, the risk appetites are, are back. And the VIX index was down. Uh, uh, 10-year yield at 4.2% has been kind of treading water. Oil prices were up, interesting, uh, almost 5 bucks, right, WTI. Uh, is around 86 and um, and Brent crude is almost 90. Uh, so that's a big move on the week. Uh, and then if you look at some of the, the stocks we cover, Boeing was essentially flat on the week. Raytheon was up about 2%. But names that are associated with maybe a little more risk, Embraer was up uh, 5.5%. Spirit Aerosystems was up 3.5%. Uh, so he had, he had that kind of moves. I guess weren't all that surprising on very light volume. So when you, when you see the market make moves uh, on a week like last week, when most everybody's out, or if they're in, they've probably got one eye on the screen and one eye out the window. Um, you can't you can't read too much into it, but you're exactly right. So we'll see uh, when people come back to the office this week, right? And back to school, um, we'll see we'll see how it all goes. Um, it, you know, it, it's you know it's it's hard to say. Uh, if you look at the big movers in the S and P, uh, you know, in in the last week, it was you know Apple, Amazon, that kind of thing, uh, and uh, we'll see where. Um, if you will, it, industrials play relative to, to tech, uh, and tech has definitely caught a bid. And we have seen some rotation out of the industrial space into the tech world. So we'll 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 see what happens there. Um, this week might have a bit of a slow start, right? Because you know nobody's in the office today, but they'll all start coming back tomorrow. Uh, and I think we'll have a more fulsome view on the direction of the market when we speak next week. Sash, uh, August is always holiday week uh, in Europe, right? I mean, so in as much as it's Labor Day for us, it's sort of 
sort of a similar schedule, even though I think people, uh, you know, spend all of August or as much of August out uh, as they can. Obviously, that's not a fully Anglo-Saxon uh, tendency. But anyway, give us kind of a sense on a the week uh, uh, week past, but also looking uh, ahead on what your expectations are this week. Yeah, okay. I mean, listen, it may not be a fully Anglo-Saxon thing, but the fact is that given that the biggest stocks in the aerospace and defence sector uh, are all based in France, that's what sets the price uh, during August. And during August, everybody goes away, uh, not just France, pretty much anywhere in, in continental Europe. So, you know, as Ron said, volumes are light. We shouldn't take, you know, pin too much on share prices last week. But again, uh, you know, um, risk on. It was a good week. Uh, for stocks in the sector. Airbus was up about 4%, MTU up about 4%, Rolls-Royce up 8%. So um, risk on, investors are buying civil aerospace. They want exposure to perceived growth, and those are two of the ways of doing it. Interestingly, Safran was a bit of a laggard, up only 2.4%. And of the defence stocks, um, you know, they were all in positive territory, but the the standout was uh, Kinetic, the UK uh, technology and services uh, business. Um, and I think what we're seeing to an extent is some of the uh, smaller UK mid caps, uh, Kinetic, Kemring in particular, beginning to, you begin to see a bit of investor interest ahead of uh, next week's DSEI defence show in London. Um, that was almost certainly, you know, there, there was an element of that, an element of sort of catch up in the Kinetic pr- uh, share price last week. But uh, volumes, I you know certainly hope to start to pick up this week uh, and uh, even more next week. I think next week, because we'll have a lot of news flow coming out of DSCI, albeit at the sort of uh, lighter end, probably not very much in the way of big orders, but um, I think that's going to be really interesting in terms of how it sets the scene for defence companies uh, going into the autumn. Just um, a quick uh, question uh, before we move on. You mentioned uh, CFM and and, uh, Safran. Obviously, in the news story going around about the discovery of counterfeit uh, CFM engine parts, obviously, CFM is the partnership uh, between uh, Safran and uh, General uh, Electric. Uh, and I should point out, GE Aerospace is our, uh, the sponsor for our AirPower podcast. Um, any sort of impact on uh, trading? And Ron and Richard, if you guys want to take a bite out of this, uh, go ahead, because we've got a lot of defense news uh, to get to uh, through uh, the program. Go ahead, Sash. I think, I mean, Safran hasn't even put out a, a statement about this. Uh, so it's something that they need to investigate. I don't think, um, I mean, there have been a lot of concerns, not just about counterfeit parts, but also about, problems, uh, particularly with the Pratt & Whitney gear turbofan, but now increasingly with General Electric's uh, G90, about um, parts with a, a pretty poor quality and a fairly high failure rate. Uh, and there have been a number of um, directives from the FAA in particular about this. So um, engine manufacturers always have to deal with the issue of counterfeit or counterfeits, poor um, uh, poor uh, you know parts that may have been uh, recovered not uh, from scrapped engines and not necessarily well documented this is sort of part of the part of the issue there um but i mean i don't think that's been particularly an issue for the saffron share price last week i think it was just that um mtu which has underperformed significantly more over the, the last quarter or so because of the uh, the gear turbofan problems uh, it's probably just seeing a bit of a catch up here ron uh why don't i come to you because you're the one who put it uh on our radar screen as something to discuss and then richard uh, get your take before we move to faxx yeah, quickly, um, you know, I think I agree with everything Sasha said. And one thing I would add is, 
uh, you know, it turns out, you know, these were, you know, parts used by um, one MRO provider and really the responsibility goes back to them. These were not provided by the OEs and, or anything. So when you think about the impact on the OEMs, it's it's really nothing because they, they didn't do anything. It was just out in the field. Somebody got some bad parts and then the investigation really be, did they know that? Didn't they know that? Where did they come from? What engines are they in? And then they have to get replaced, that kind of thing. Uh, but we did get a lot of questions on it. I mean, there seems to be an acute sensibility right now, at least in U.S. equity markets, around airworthiness directives and issues. And, it, and I think it all goes back to a couple of things the GTF and kind of the whole string of events that's been going on on the 737, everything from, you know, the holes being wrong, the holes being drilled in the wrong spots and the, the aft pressure bulkhead and the whole thing with the vertical tail. And so there's just sort of an extreme sensitivity today in the investment community around airworthiness directives, what they mean and so on and so forth. Richard, uh, your your take on this and very quickly, we'll sandwich uh, China in here also because uh, Gino Raimondo, uh, just, uh, you know, did did spend uh, and had, I think, a productive uh, trip uh, to China. But the Chinese also did, uh, you know, delivered a lot of powerful messaging, including a new Huawei phone that has very advanced chips, almost, uh, you know, underscore that, uh, hey, you, you know, your massive uh, drive to, uh, you know, damage or curb uh, our, our uh, chip industry is, is really not going to work. But uh, just give us a quick uh, CFM uh, take. Uh, and then want to get your uh, thoughts on China. Well, no, complete agreement with uh, Ron and Sash. Just obviously the system works. It it, it obviously catches bad things before bad things happen, uh, before worse things happen. So, uh, you know, reassuring. And uh, as Ron says, it's it's nothing to do with the industry itself. It's it's just some bad actors out there outside the industry completely. And uh, really quickly, Gino Raimondo's uh, trip, uh, Commerce Secretary appears uh, to have been talking about the importance of uh, partnership, but right, we need a level playing field and also delivering some very pointed messages to the Chinese. At the same time, the Chinese uh, delivered a whole bunch of potent messages uh, to the United States, right? We know their economy is vulnerable. They're very concerned about uh, us drawing closer or, or us bringing Asia together against them. Uh, on the other hand, they also released a Huawei phone that has very advanced chips in it as a message to sort of say, hey, United States, you know, you may be trying to globally sanction us, but we're still going to be able to produce ITAR free phones and sort of stick it uh, stick it to us. And I think I can't remember which one of the papers was had a story that, you know, that uh, that, you know, the message was received by some in Washington. How did you gauge the trip? And what does coopetition look like now? Because the Chinese also recognize their economy is very vulnerable. So in some cases, right, it was senior Chinese officials saying, yeah, you know, we 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 can do trade, you know, we can live together. But what were the messages from this uh broadly uh before we move on and sink our teeth into everything else defense-wise? Well, I think it was um, you know, pretty much what was expected, no breakthroughs. I mean, the fact is that we have if not declared technology war against them we've come pretty close and yeah, whether it's the chips themselves the lithography machines that make the chips all the other enabling tools of manufacturing and designing chips you know this is pretty clear and with that in the backdrop it's going to be very difficult to pretend everything else is just fine uh, <laughs> and and you know from the standpoint of our industry of course there was talk that uh, uh, secretary uh, Ramado would be perhaps discussing Boeing but at the end of the day, there was absolutely nothing that happened in terms of orders, which, of course, you know, the Chinese haven't placed any new orders for Boeing jets in six years, I believe now. 
Um, so, but the good news I, is they're going to take delivery, right? So Boeing is gearing up to start delivering airplanes. And there are some who would say that, right, they've been prosecuting economic warfare on us while we've continued to sort of free trade uh, for some time, right? I mean, this yes. is sort of a lagging response. Or like we were like, no, they'll come to their senses. This is logical. One hand, my back, your back. We scratch each other's back. This is good, as opposed to mm, I'm going to monopolize all the back scratchers. Yeah. There are many ways to see this, but at the end of the day, the two sides just aren't getting along. Cooperation is a buzzword, and it's it's clear that Boeing, as so many times in the past, is going to be the designated hostage in the standoff, as someone once said. I mean, it, it's it's just, you know, it's not a happy story. The only thing you can say is that, boy, Chinese domestic traffic has come roaring back. It's above 2019 levels. They can supply them all. The Chinese certainly can't build their own. Therefore, I think it's just a matter of time. It was inevitable that they would start coming back into the China uh, market. The maxes, I think it's a matter of time before we see orders, you know, but they're just obviously the victim of higher politics right now. Uh, just a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show uh, next week outside Washington, D.C. Ron, uh, in terms of closing the gap on uh, chip production, Right. I mean, we have this sense that somehow we can monopolize this uh, technology, whereas those who sort of even opposed this, you know, a lot of these uh, export restrictions have said, look, at least if we're in the system, we can control where some of the technology goes. That works if you can control the technology and the Chinese, either through their own investment or stealing, man have managed to create their own ecosystem that can actually produce some pretty competitive chips. The Russians are getting computer chips by buying our consumer appliances and European consumer appliances and turning them into Kinjal uh, guidance units, right? But ultimately, how do we need to think about this ecosystem as our resident technologist on this call? I think you, you kind of have to think about it like sandbags and water. Um, you can't keep it out of their hands forever, right? I mean, ultimately, um, they're going to get the technology one way or another. So, I mean, you either have to keep ahead of them um, or figure out how to, you know, work with the fact that they're going to get the technology. Um, I think the bigger issue is our chip sourcing has been so dependent on Asia Pac, in particular Taiwan, and Taiwan is seen as a vulnerable place by many. Uh, and how do you handle that? And the the Chips Act seems like it's a start in the right direction, but for all the infrastructure that has to be built out, A. And then B, all the raw materials that are needed to manufacture chips, which we don't necessarily have access to. Um, it's it's still a very big problem, right? So um, you know, it's it's a it's a short question, but I think you know, you could probably talk about this. You could have a whole conference talking about how you handle this, honestly. And it's uh and it's a point that uh, actually uh, one of the reasons why we end up talking uh, about this, and that's actually a great idea for a program of ours to dive a little bit deeper uh, into that. Um, Sash, kind of a European perspective uh, on this, uh, because Europe has gotten so frustrated with U.S. ITAR, uh, international traffic and arms regulation, that um, 
you know, there there's so much frustration that we have seen ITAR-free satellites, right? ITAR-free weapon systems, which then just sort of circumvents the United States role. And we're going to talk about this a, a little bit more, right? Because the United States is increasingly turning to, quote, friendshoring, uh, especially when it comes to weapons needs, knowing that there is no, you know, that it alone can't act as an arsenal of democracy anymore the way that it, it used to be able to, right? I mean, a lot of frustration that we're not surging production the way we need to be because of supply chains and the fact that we just don't make some of this stuff anymore. What's kind of the European point of view on this, Sash? Uh, as as you guys sort of watch this happening around you? I mean, Europeans don't have, I mean, big, big super generalization, clearly. But Europeans don't have as big a, um, uh, a focus on Chinese consumption of an access to, uh, to chips as uh, the US has. Um, there will clearly be some restriction on what are perceived to be either military-grade chips or indeed the uh, advanced lithography machines that are capable of making those. Um, you know, the, the majority of lithography machines are made by ASML in the Netherlands, uh, and very, very good they are too. Um, but I think that, you, you know, it's going to be very hard to have a, a sweeping broad technology embargo against uh, China. You, you know, Europe is just too dependent on China for trade, and hence for economic growth. Just, it won't happen. But when it comes to specific military items and specific uh, civil aerospace items that have a uh, direct military application and you know, composites in particular, but also clearly um, uh, issues, you know, the, the electronics associated with advanced communications and radar equipment, then yeah, you know, Europe is, is highly aware of that. But ITAR has been a, a running sore for European companies for and, and European nations for 20, 25 years. And I think, you know, it's no mistake or it's no coincidence that both of the next generation European military aircraft, SCAF, um, FCAS for France, Germany and Spain, and the Tembis Global Combat Air Programme um, led by the UK, but including Japan and uh, Italy, both of those are designed at present to be um, ITAR free and hence free of US components, period. Sasha, I want to pull on this uh, a little bit, though, right? On, on the one hand, uh, the White House is, you know, talking about Buy American. Democrats are pr proposing some extremely draconian and constrictive, right? I mean, that that all parts in every uh, warship by like 2035 or 2033, whatever it is, have to be built entirely in the United States. While at the same time, the Pentagon is delivering this message of friendshoring that we need allies and partners. Every once in a while, you hear that from uh, the White House as well, right? I mean, the White House signed up to AUKUS. Uh, okay. So on the one hand, we're talking about Buy American, but we're saying that Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States are going to partner on sharing submarine technology and componentry and even designs. The Pentagon is going out there and saying, hey, there's no way for us to be this arsenal of democracy. We do need allies and partners. You know, CQ Brown has been talking about this and we've been talking about it on the program as well. Sort of, you know, architect, integrate by design, get the integration done. And then the parts can be produced more more broadly. Is there a sense that things in Washington are changing or is the rhetoric sort of not clear and all jumbled up? And I want to quickly go around the horn with all of us before we get to FAXX. Um, look, we'll get a best steer on this uh, after the DSCI show in London next week. But as of now, I don't I haven't spoken to anybody who believes that the U.S. is going to open up and uh, take you know large levels of supply from uh, your beloved allies, um, Congress versus Pentagon, con Congress trumps every single time. 
Uh, and if Congress wants you to buy American, uh, you know, that's what you're going to do. Um, no, it, it would be lovely to think otherwise, but um, I've never seen it. I've never seen it work out. I don't see why it, sh why it should now, frankly. I mean, you know, mere need is not enough. Uh, it's so political, the issue of where's the jobs, where does the technology reside? Um, I, I get a sense uh, that it's uh, moving. But Richard and Ron, your guys' uh, take on whether or not you guys think this ball uh, is moving, because when Bill LaPlante um, says that it's moving, and I should say the catalyst for this is Doug Cameron's great story in the Wall Street Journal um, talking about uh, the Pentagon uh, looking to overseas, uh, as you know, both on the industry side uh, as well, uh, looking to satisfy orders, because we just don't have this capacity to produce everything. Uh, on our own within our borders, you know, there's a lot of frustration in the Pentagon that we actually can't do this. And so we're getting very pragmatic. Do you guys get a sense that this needle is moving? Because I certainly get the sense the needle is moving. But then again, I've also, you know, you don't you don't know how much of this rhetoric is for political consumption and how much of it is. Ron, and then Richard, your take. So we're going to lean on allies who, in many cases, haven't meaningfully invested in their industrial base since the end of World War II for capacity. I mean, rationally, I mean, think about that. Well, I think the way that they're looking at it is that a lot of our allies and partners are now spending more money, and some of them did not rationalize that much, especially, for example, the Poles. The Germans do have a rather massive industrial complex, even though it's not optimized. We, you know, so, I mean, there are, there are pockets of capability and people are investing in this, and it would be important to sort of round back on Sash uh, in, in terms of where we are on, on, on that. But Richard, kind of your sense, rhetorically and otherwise as a, a robust uh, free trader? Well, yeah, I mean, of course, there's more than just the NATO allies that have, uh, well, badly <laughs> underfunded their industrial base over the past couple of decades. You know, I mean, there's also South Korea, there's Israel, um, there's lots of other countries that seem to be ramping up. I think the most important thing is to encourage people to make those investments, because, you know, if you're, if you're I don't know, a, a German defense industry, how sincere do you really think the German government is being, you know, do you really make that investment necessary? So if you encourage that by saying, hey, you know, look, if they don't do everything they can, this is a global market. Let's buy from our allies, too. Maybe that'll move the needle and get people to invest in you know, numerous places that might have otherwise factored risk into their investment decisions. I sure hope that's the case. Now, in the meantime, of course, and Japan, by is, the way, is Japan is almost Japan. doubling its defense investment, right? That's, that's right. Pretty serious. That's right. And 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 Australia, too. You know, I mean, right, exactly. back a few years ago, industrial policy was, uh, you know, or offsets or any kind of industrial investment in Australia was a complete, you know, nope, not doing it. Now it's, oh, my God, we're going to build a hypersonic missile center of excellence, one extreme to the other, really. So, you know, you want to encourage this and therefore you want to imply you're going to globally source and therefore be part of their long term marketing plans when they make those investment decisions. Wonderful. But now the problem, of course, and this is the reason to be a little cynical, it's not just the fact that, you know, Britain and others have under invested. It's also the fact that industrial policy is back in vogue in the U.S. And you never know what's going to come down the pike in terms of, you know, buy American, make American industry great again, or what other, you know, berry amendment mutated offsprings we see coming down the pike that's going to mandate that we don't. So, you know, I, I think there's just conflicting directions. But right now, I, I think the needle might be moving and, 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 and in a very positive way. 
uh, I, uh, as they say, from your mouth to God's ears, although uh, I, uh, I do uh, think that that's uh, happening. Um, Sash, hold on one second. I'm going to come to you uh, in a moment, but a reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervillo and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own J.J. Gertler. Uh, and uh, tune into that program uh, on Thursday because it's going to have uh, in our pre-AFA program an interview with Frank Kendall, uh, the Secretary of the United States uh, Air Force. Sash, uh, your your take uh, quickly on whether or not this needle is moving. I think this is the only way that we go forward. We have to create an arsenal of democracies and actually do a better job integrating, designing together, and figuring out how to build things and go to modularity so that a Polish missile maker or a German missile maker can surge production or a Japanese one can surge production of the things we need so that we don't end up going, oh, my, once once these <laughs> the stocks run out, which Ukraine, Ukraine is depleting rather quickly and we are not refilling, becomes kind of problematic. Anyway, give us your sense. Look, I believe it when I see it. I'm not holding my breath. Um, I think that um, you know, I mean, ITAR is ITAR is a major issue if there are if these are products for which there might be an export a, a, uh, application. I think a lot of capacity expansion in Europe is for European consumption and and thence for Ukraine. I don't think I don't know of a single company that has thought about expanding capacity of munitions, armored vehicles air-to-air missiles, or any sort of missiles for that matter, and thought, and we're going to do this because the US market is going to open up for us. Um, that may change, but I think companies will take their time before even putting capacity in for that for that possible outcome. And I think that uh, you know, domestic requirements are going to be the focus for most Europeans. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of rearmament the Europeans need to do before they have free capacity again. Let's uh, move on because I want to get uh, everybody's take on FAXX, uh, the United States Navy not taking a page out of the United States Air Force playbook uh, and announcing uh, the three competitors, right? Everything about the U.S. Air Force's next generation air dominance program is considered uh, top secret. Uh, all we know is that there is a competition. I think we've advanced the ball a little bit. You know, we found there were three demonstrators. Uh, then it was uh, two companies. Uh, you know, we understand they were down selected to two companies. One of those is not Northrop because Northrop said I'm not in it. Uh, and I'm pursuing FAXX. Uh, um, what, Ron, do we know and what does it mean? And are there any surprises? Here? I guess, no, there wasn't really much of a surprise here. I mean, you've got the three major contractors competing for this thing. Um, you know, and, and you've got two, right, who are who have strong histories with the Navy. Uh, call that what was McDonnell Douglas, right? Boeing today and uh, Northrop Grumman. Uh, I guess largely through the Grumman division, right? Um, so you, you've got two companies that have that. It's going to be a relatively sizable contract in terms of volume right just because of the nature of where these aircraft are going to be deployed um so yeah i mean that wasn't surprising um it'll be interesting to see if there's any jointness in this thing with ngad i think i think uh, i don't want to speak out of turn but 
a lot of folks had sort of in the end had a kind of bitter taste in their mouth over F35 that you had this one system that was supposed to kind of open every bottle and be the system for everybody. In the end, it, it kind of really didn't do that sort of, right? Um, so, so we'll, well see. Like, I think, I think it does it with capability, but it does it in a lot more complicated a fashion. It was, you know, it just took too long and it was too ambitious. And, you know, you could talk about requirements. I think there were a lot of lessons, even though I think the airplane at the end of the day is, you know, unique and delivering a lot of capability. Uh, but I think that the Air Force and the Navy have said, right, that they're going to work together, share lessons and share subsystems and capabilities. So, you know, hope, hopefully they de develop different airplanes, but that there's more in common or at least as much in common as possible. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems like a, a reasonable strategy, right, from the get-go point. Like, we'll have different machines, but if there's some overlap, right, then that, then that seems to make sense. Um, you know, so far, the street hasn't been so focused on it, right? I mean, the one that's garnered a lot of the attention is, is NGAD. Um, and maybe just because of nature, how this thing sort of arrived on the scene. It, it came in with, you know, this funny kind of cryptic name in the budget. And then sort of like, oh, FAXX, you know, that's what it is. Um, so so we'll see. I would imagine the investment community will take more interest in this um, over you know, the coming months and years uh, as it starts coming together. Uh, Richard, uh, your sense, since you're the one, as we were preparing for this, we're like, ooh, ooh, ooh we've got to talk about this. Ooh, ooh go ahead. Um, yes, I, I might have demonstrated a certain degree of enthusiasm in my text, but you know, <laughs> we're talking uh, next generation combat aircraft here, people. The, uh, <laughs> the thing that's, that I think is, is, is important about it, you know, in addition to all of that Ron said, I, I look at it from the standpoint of a corporate planner who is, you know, wondering how much work to put into this do you deliver a bid that's the size of a you know technology demonstrator or do you deliver a thin manila envelope you know the u.s navy this is bit they've been stuck for some time now unlike the air force they do not have a fifth generation uh fighter in any significant numbers the air force has the f-22 and lots of f-35as the marines have taken b's and c's but they've long since clearly indicated they would like to divorce the blue water navy and that's been going on for several decades now leaving the navy i, I think it's hard to filter out c's that are marines and c's that are uh usn's but it looks like they've got about 20 <laughs> i mean and and yeah you know, obviously the whole you know MQ, this, that, and the other thing isn't quite working out from, you know, filling carrier decks. Uh, they have clearly indicated no more Super Hornets, please. Uh, really uncertain about a Super Hornet slap. If you start, if you run out of planes, as they found out back in the early 90s when they found themselves with, with a dead A-12 program, you might run the risk of actually losing carriers in the budget war and possibly in a real war. So they got to move forward on this is what I'm trying to say. This is going to be every bit as secure a program. It's been a little bit longer, perhaps in the black world. It didn't have Dr. Will Roper behind it talking about the uh, the air vehicles and, and what was being done. But I think it's not at all unreal. And that's why I think Northrop Grumman decided, all right, we're doing the odds here. Um, NGAD, it's big, it's expensive, it's risky. You know, we're going to put all of our focus on FAXX. And it's going to be fascinating because, of course, Boeing has uh, a strong chance here. I, if I, if someone put a gun to my, set, in my head and said, OK, what does sixth generation look like? I would have to say it's Lockheed Martin working with someone else on Air Force NGAD. And it is Northrop Grumman taking lead on FAXX, perhaps with a one third share from Boeing, the exact opposite of, you know, YF-17, FA-18. Uh, 
that that's sort of my my read on the whole thing. But it's a fascinating state of affairs. And the important thing, again, is that the Navy has no other ways forward. So they're going to be perhaps the most aggressive funder of this next generation combat aircraft. Um, I would also point out the notion of the relevance of the aircraft carrier is something that's been debated for decades. uh, I mean, you could even argue since World War II with the development of nuclear weapons, but more profoundly, because this is the first time the carrier deck is short ranged and it was not stealthy. Right. I mean, the Navy is not a fan of the F-35. Those in the Navy, the more they use the F-35, the more they like it. And what they do need is something that's more standoff, more longer range and stealthy that can operate in the battle space and hence they want to develop and gad they should have been developing a plane like this or better using f-35s uh but you know again um better better late than never um uh, sash do you want to weigh into this uh at all or do i ask you about grant shaps uh the man who has uh succeeded uh ben wallace as the secretary of state for defense of the united kingdom yeah, I'll move on to uh, Grant Shapps. Um, uh, and I think what this tells you is, um, you know, defence has been put on the back burner for, uh, until the next election. Next election in the UK sometime next year could be as early as sort of March, April time. Um, uh, might even be a bit earlier than that. Uh, but Grant Shapps is a uh, a very, very... Um, <laughs> he's a very political politician. He's been put in this job to be the political attack dog for uh, the government, for the Conservative Party, not because the Conservative Party, the government, has any particular wish to do stuff on defence. So I think we should expect a great deal on defence. He will very, very um, loyally and I'm sure perfectly competently uh, continue the UK's commitments to uh, defending Ukraine and supplying it with arms and so forth. But he's not going to, I think, be particularly focused on defence policy. Um, md has been told there's no more money. They've actually got to learn to spend what they've been given uh, properly first, and that will take some time. Um, but uh, Grant Chaps' position, uh, you know, it's very similar to Michael Fallon, uh, the previous or f- former defence uh, minister who was known in the UK as the minister for the Today programme, the, the BBC right. uh, early morning programme. Fallon's job was to appear on the Today programme and do politics and do attack politics. Chaps is, is very much in the same mould. Um, uh, it's it's actually pretty simple, but it does mean that there's not going to be, I think, a, you know, we shouldn't expect uh, anything dramatic in terms of policy or change coming out of defence now until after the next election when there will be a defence review. And then we'll be we'll begin to see what the UK wants to be in the future. Um, I, I thought it was fascinating that in the uh, announcement, uh, it said that, you know, at a time when aerial issues are in the news, he's a pilot. So at least uh, there's that. I, I found it a little incongruous. It's great to have an aviator in the job, certainly. It's not. He's um, not an aviator. He's a private pilot. It's like saying you're good at, you're good at land warfare because you drive a car. <laughs> okay. I, was, I was saying an aviator. <laughs> he is an aviator. He is not a military aviator, but he's an aviator. And so that at least gives you a little bit of currency uh, to have the competition, conversation. But that's the only point I was trying to make. Uh, although I have you, to you say, could go, you could go paintballing and then you'd be you'd be conversant in support weapons. Yeah, yeah, that's that that that's right. Um, although I will say, in 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 fairness, there have been members who really have stepped up. I think Michael Fallon was one of those members who stepped up, and I think did a very credible uh, job. M- many others who filled the portfolio, whether uh, it was Philip Dunn, uh, 
uh, and you know, uh, you know, Peter Luff, uh, Sir Peter, uh, did a terrific job as well, stepping into you know. So I mean, you you you've had um, the guys who don't have uh, and women who don't really have a defense portfolio, but have stood up uh, to the occasion, haven't you? In the past, uh, oh, I'm, look, I'm, absolutely. The requirements to be a minister in government is not to know a great deal about the subject. Your requirement is to. Uh, you know, is to front the department and to represent the department within the government. Um, but you're not expected to have uh, experience. It's actually, it's the exception, or certainly in the last 30 years, it's been, it's been the exception rather than the rule. Um, and I, I think it's unreasonable to expect, uh, you know, in our political system, experts to, uh, experts to become the politicians who then head up those departments. That's not how, that's not how our politics works. And let me just ask you about the uh, Ukraine war. A uh, very interesting tweet uh, coming from the Ukrainians, um, right? We appreciate the criticism, but nobody knows how to fight this war better than we do. And it appears as though the Ukrainians are making progress, even though now there's a massive change uh, that uh, President Zelensky has made, uh, sacking uh, the defense minister uh, and and re- replacing him right now. What What is the progress as you see it? Sash, and what what stage of the war are we in? I think that we are still at the um, the break the breakthrough stage. Uh, you know, by by some accounts down in the south, so heading towards the um, the Black Sea, the Ukrainians have at least penetrated the first line of Russian defenses, and possibly even you know penetrated elements or areas of the second line of Russian defense. But put this in context. Each of these defensive positions is between 10 and 10 and 15 kilometers apart. So um, what that means is that Ukrainian guns are quite hard pushed to shoot from Ukraine to the to beyond the Russian third line of defenses. In some cases, Um, you know, the Russians really are defending in depth, uh, which is exactly as they should be. Um, And, you know, the you know, the Russians are are excellent at this sort of uh, defensive thing. And they've been very, very good at putting the, the defences, whether it is, uh, um, uh, you know, strong points, wire or mines, generally all three, uh, where they should be. But I think the fact that the Ukrainians have clearly made some pretty deep penetrations down, down in the south um, and got through the first couple of lines, that will start to stress the Russians because they will have to work out how to seal any pe- further penetration off um, they will probably have to start now focusing on digging more lines of defense um, behind the existing ones. And you know, if that means they just keep on doing it every five, 10 kilometers, so be it. That will still slow the Ukrainians down a lot. It will draw Russian combat power off from the northeast, which is where the Ukrainians are most worried about it. Uh, up north of Bakhmut, though, you know, the Russians had been threatening some sort of uh, uh, counteroffensive. But I think the deeper that the, that the Ukrainians penetrate in the south, the more the Russians will have to make hard decisions about do you attack in one place and give up territory in the other, or do you actually go and uh, go and defend again? I don't think the Russians can afford to lose large amounts of territory down in the south because the, um, uh, the swathe of land between the Black Sea, the Crimea, and uh, the Dnieper River and then the, the Ukrainian lines is not that deep, you know, right. broadly 50, 100 kilometers deep. Um, the Russians can't trade very much of that before uh, their strategic uh, positions, in particular in the Crimea, become very, very threatened indeed. So, you know, more power to the Ukrainians, but 
you know, does anybody else do this better than them? And we've always got to come back to the fact it's their lives that they're giving up. They are right. taking casualties that no Western country could even conceive of nowadays. Um, that's very humbling, I think. I think it is really poor form for us to criticise how they do, how they fight this war. They're doing it with their blood. We're not contributing blood. We're just contributing hardware. Um, and uh, Richard, uh, you get uh, 30 seconds to a minute. Talk about the Lockheed Martin facility uh, in Romania and whether or not that's a game changer. Well, I think it's a significant step forward. You know, I mean, take you back to the 19, late 1970s, European participating group that was a feeling that all NATO powers were part of the F-16 user community. There were all kinds of implications and efficiencies built into that, it would be nice to see if that legacy was continuing moving to the east, because of course you've got Poland and other countries in the region on top of likely Ukraine operating this. So you could have a kind of eastern NATO capability, everything from training to logistics, uh, operating the F-16. It's a very effective uh, multi-role fighter, a very cost-effective multi-role fighter for decades to come. So I think it's an important step forward. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Wouldn't be a week without you. Uh, really appreciate it. Hope everybody had a great holiday. Hope you guys have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks as always, Vago. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago, and happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day indeed, and happy Labor Day uh, to our audience again. Hope everybody had a terrific uh, weekend. Thanks very much for joining us. A very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible every day. Uh, hope that everybody has a great evening and join us again uh, tomorrow when Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners joins us to discuss uh, what's been on his mind and what he's been writing about over the past uh, two weeks. Thanks very much again and hope everybody has a great day.